how can we think through these new forms of collecting and put them in line with what a museum does in forms of stewardship, telling stories, bringing untold stories to the forefront? And how do our contemporary, our spaces of NFT, our spaces of digital collectibles, how can we bring and facilitate that better? That is what is interesting to me. Um, my name is Rosa Menkman. I'm here at The Void, which is a new platform for uh, audiovisual publishing in the realms of artistic research. And I was invited to talk about um, publishing within the realms of maybe collecting. And to me, that's interesting because the last interaction I had with the INC was a publication. And it was my remarks on crypto art. This is obviously <laughs> old stuff. I have worked a little bit in the NFT space. I've been quite critical. I'm not going into NFTs within this talk too much. But what is interesting, this space has brought many problems, questions, issues, but mostly redefinitions to the foreground. Like a lot of words were either new or are in the need to be redefined. So for me, just one thing about NFTs maybe that is of interest is that I often feel like NFTs don't bring that much new to the table. They just bring a lot of complicated language. And if we don't understand the language, it's very hard to be part of the space. Um, but then they also co-opt a lot of words. And so during this rise and then maybe fall of the NFT space, um, I think it's a good time now to consider words that are used a lot within the space, maybe within its original spaces and the digital spaces as a whole. So I'm thinking here about words like collecting, collections, uh, documentation, or deriv derivatives and authenticity. I think about systems of indexations, ownership, worth, but also value. And I think these get like interchanged a lot. So. Um, maybe stewardship, patronage, like scarcity. Those are all important things to address. But within this little video, I'm going from my own perspective, which is uh, something I had to kind of reevaluate also for a talk that I gave uh, during a conference, which was called Bibliotech. Uh, it took place earlier this year in Cyprus. Uh, at Nîmes, which is an art gallery. And um, during Bibliotech, we were talking about different ways of collecting and collecting within the digital realm, especially also speculative uh, collections. Right, so before I get into that old presentation that I did for uh, Bibliotech, I wanted to uh, go into this text that is called My Collectible Ass, written by Mackenzie Work. I think this is such a beautiful text. She wrote it in 2017, and I wanted to read a few little excerpts about it. Um, so she writes, to think about digital objects as collectible, it may help to start by asking what it is that is actually being collected. We tend to think that what is collected is a rare object. But what makes it rare? 
perhaps there is more than one way to look at the rarity of an object or the reasons why an object can be rare. To make a digital object rare, it can be locked in in various ways, etc., etc., etc. I'm going to move uh, a little bit forward. Uh, she describes two st three stages, but I'm just going to the key here. I'm going to skip a few paragraphs and I'm going into uh, her kind of um, conclusion, which is here. The key is the role of information about the artwork. The, informa the information about the artwork is actually the most important thing about the artwork. What establishes the value, so maybe not worth, and it's also debatable what is then the value, if it's monetary or cultural, for instance, of the work is that people talk about it, write about it, that it circulates, that author unauthorized pictures of it circulate. The more it circulates, the more value it has. So here it's obviously cultural value. The actual work is derivative of the value of its simulations. The future of collecting may be less in owning the thing that nobody else has and more in owning the thing that everybody has. And to me, this is very interesting. Um, finally, there's one more sentence that I would like to highlight and that is, what is collectible is not the artwork or even documentation. What is collect collectible is the simulation of the artwork in the art world and beyond. And so to me here, um, there becomes a question about what is collecting. Collected, she writes, is nothing more than the act of collecting itself, which is a derivative of the information circulating about the work. And so this sentence, what is collected is nothing more than the act of collecting itself, is really interesting because I think we need to dive into what collecting is, what the act of collecting has become, not in the NFT space per se, but maybe beyond and before and what kind of like new questions this has kind of brought to us in the space and also what collections have become and what role they now uh, play, right? Uh, I first wanted to point out that there is, of course, during this uh, digitization of everything cultural, there's already a huge past of collecting and I think libraries are just a part of that. I'm thinking about my old personal collections that were on Soulseek or on Delicious. Uh, now they've maybe moved to Bandcamp or I don't know, other places like Miro boards. But I'm also thinking about shadow libraries. I also think it's always very important to bring up the shadow libraries and the roles they play. So if you're not familiar with shadow libraries, there um, there's a beautiful piece on Monoscope about them. Monoscope itself is also a shadow library. So if you just visit their website, you can like find this collection, this collection of shadow libraries. Um, one of maybe a form of a shadow library is actually a library that is also visitable in the real. And this is the Prelinger library. Um, and this whole talk that I gave at Bibliotech in Cyprus was inspired by my visit to the Prelinger library, which is an analog space, but it has a lot of its books also digitized and uh, in the archives of the web archive. And obviously now in the last year, there were a lot of lawsuits. So they got also in quite some issues of 
if they can keep their library in archive, the web archive. Um, but I just wanted to visit this library uh, or revisit it with you because when I visited this library, it was a really special moment. I was there with um, Don and Andrew. Don is the creator of uh, the platform that I'm using, which is called New Art City. It's um, Don himself is an artist working in the digital and he wanted people because you see more and more people with 3D scanning devices making a lot of scans, but it's very hard to actually use 3D scans uh, within any kind of environments. Um, he wanted to make it easier for artists to use 3D artistic platforms. So what he created is a 3D artistic platform created by artists for artists. And so what is the difference between like other 3D platforms such as Unity or uh, Unreal Engine is that this is really created for artists and not for um, making money, um, big companies that want to create gameplay, etc. So that's just a short introduction to this alternative way of showing my collection inside a collection, thinking through collections. Um, so here we are. We're at the entrance of the Prelinger Library. The Prelinger Library is like, it could be called like a new form of a Zettelkast. Uh, I don't know. I like this word um, because not a lot of people use it, but it makes uh, a lot of sense to me. Zettelkast is just where you put all your kind of references, little texts and on topics kind of connected, like... Um, maybe sporadically connected. Uh, and so you can create, it's like a Miro board, but an analog form. Um, in this case, it is a real library, but the topics are maybe uh, less traditional. So I sat down at the table and they um, offer you um, this 2D map of kind of like a collection of favorite topics that the library covers. And so um, what you get is like, here it is. This is the kind of 2D version. Um, you have many different topics, but they feel very much on a personal level connected. Like there's radio as a topic. There are film references, but then we immediately see uh, a text on color. Um, there are a lot of like contemporary texts about Black Lives Matter as a uh, you say genre of texts. Um, then they have also a collection, for instance, of political pins. So the things that you wear when you show that you have voted or if you're like in favor of a particular political group. And they call them uh, universes of a moment and a, a thought. And um, they are all in little box. And so it's not just books or documents. It's all kinds of materialities. And here we're coming already very close to a sense of an expanded library. It's like, it's not just books, it's not just texts, it's objects. The material ca carrier of knowledge has been expanded and I think libraries are now like taking cue in that thought and they're starting to expand their libraries by having different types of materialities. They become a library of different materials of knowledge and not just books. And what I really like about this particular library is that then it also doesn't want 
to be engaged as a traditional uh, library. So I'm just pulling up the Prelinger Libraries Wikipedia page um, where they kind of describe who they are, what they do. It's like funded since uh, 2004 in San Francisco. And they write, the library is unusual in that it uses a custom system of organization designed by Megan that intends to facilitate and emphasize browsing. So it's not using this Dewey Decimal system that most libraries usually use. They have their own way of kind of making connections. And for me, this is also like kind of a someone else's memory palace maybe, but because we're maybe a lot of like-minded people, you enter someone else's memory palace, but it feels very flowy. And therefore it's also becoming this place where you start to make connections really easily. And so browsing, that thing that we used to do on the internet, really becomes something that captures you and your imagination about what browsing could be through different material objects. So um, this is also why they call it a library of serendipity, right? It's like things fall to you, but it's kind of like gives you, uh, it has been set up to bring you these serendipitous moments. And I think that's the beauty of what uh, these new libraries could do. Yeah, so here we are at the entrance, right? And I'm just gonna like, kind of like walk through it. And so what happened to me while I entered and I heard their stories, I got totally overwhelmed, especially when I entered the first book rack because there's so much there that the only thing I could think of was to 3D scan it, because then I could take it home and I could revisit what was sitting next to each other. And this was like one of the first times I really 3D scanned a whole environment. There's this feeling of being in a space that has so many connections and inspirations to give you, but you don't have the time. You can either go on the walk of serendipity or <laughs> you can collect the whole library and take it home. This is what I did. So um, I just wanted to walk with you through the space. Oops, I went inside the bookcase. Um, here you see uh, a collection of collections. It's a wall full of um, big binders that have the collection, for instance, of these pins, but also VHS tapes, maps of a certain space, etc. Um, now here is one of my favorite bookshelves. It had like television books. It came out a little bit shitty in the scan, but it's very nice still. Um, and then what I thought about when I had this particular um, presentation is my own work. And so I wanted to talk through you uh, or talk to you about what this meant to me and my thinking after visiting this library, my thinking about what it means to be uh, a research-based artist. So for Bibliotech, I was invited to talk about what collecting means. And in the preparation to thinking through what collecting means to me, I had this experience of the Prellinger li Library uh, but I also had already previous talks I had with friends 
One of them, for instance, is John Sedrum from Chicago. We've been longtime collaborators on the Glitch Festival we used to organize in from 2010 to 2013, a while back, but 2012. Um, but on one of those late nights, we were talking a lot and we realized that we are actually both collectors, which is not that surprising, but collectors of the digital. And I think around the 2010s, this was not like right click safe wasn't like a joke yet. <laughs> um, we had folders full of images. And in one end, it's like logical because back in the days, like browsing was expensive. So you didn't want to like have to go back to a certain image, you would download it. But on the other end, like we had specific types of images we saved, right? Like these were glitch images. And so we had like a lot of collections of different types of glitch images. But then we started to talk uh, more through this and this kind of like compulsive <laughs> way of collecting digital objects. And we realized that a lot of our collections are not just in the digital, they are also in real life. Like we are actual collectors since day one of our existence. That's maybe a bit, okay, that's too much. But we are big collectors. We have collections inside collections, inside collections. You can collect in multiple ways, but one way is to collect collections that are open-ended, right? Collections that never end, that are not as much about encompassing the whole object, but it's about that it gives you imaginations to open up the object more. So every object that you add to that one collection just gives you kind of this imaginary route to think through the genre. And so we both did this a lot. And so we started to share collections. And then for the Bibliotech conference, I thought it would be interesting to bring back this type of personal collecting and to think through what those types of collections could be. And maybe that gives us like a way to think through new forms of collecting. So what I'm gonna do is something that is a little bit more personal than normal. I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna invite you in to my hoarder <laughs> life. Uh, it's called My Old Collection of Collections. Right, so for this, I went to my poor parents who still hold most of my old collections under like inside boxes and places. Some of it is also in my own house now here. But, and I opened some of those boxes and I tried to photograph them. And then I wanted to give them all a kind of a classification. So different types of, or classes of collections of collections. And the first one I wanna start with is my traditional collection of finite sets, like CryptoKitties, but different. Um, obviously this is old. So here we have stamps from the leaders of Spain, the UK, the Netherlands and France. So here we have finite sets. Obviously they like are very formally uh, responding to particular designer trademarks. And the only thing that really can change is maybe the color, the leader, and the price they're worth, or maybe the quality at which I took them from uh, letters. Anyway, everybody knows these types of collections. They're rather trite, but they exist. And I feel like they have a lot of equivalence in the digital So Then here we come to traditional collections of non-finite or permutating artifacts. Um, this is uh, 
containing boxes full of special rocks. I have boxes and boxes full of special rocks. <laughs> Some of them have names also. I'm not going to go into that now. Uh, and one of the many other boxes that make up this collection is also my seashell museum, which has a name. It's called the Nautilus. And it has also um, rules on entrance prices and who gets to enter. Well, not really who gets to enter, but like um, it says, uh, it's very forbidden to touch anything. And you can only enter when I am with you. Grown-ups are for dollars. I don't know why. Uh, and uh, children are just two. And groups are uh, more than four people are six guilders. Okay, cool. So uh, here we have my collection that make up the Nautilus. It's a really beautiful collection. Um, another permutating, permutating artifact. Um, Twelve different editions of the same book of Peter Rabbit. A Peter Rabbit puzzle and a Peter Rabbit stick puppet. Here we have sugar bags saved for the museum of my childhood best friend. Uh, so he collected sugar bags from any cafeteria or restaurant. Um, but this collection never made it to his collection because his mother found out that he secretly would eat all the sugar bags at night in bed. So the museum of sugar bags got suspended. Another collection is, um, or another kind of category of collections would be naive collections. They consist of objects I just cannot seem to throw away. So here we have, for instance, a collection of bugs. Um, I see some dragonflies, uh, moths, etc. bugs, like real bugs. Uh, casts of my teeth in different stages of putting them straight. Seeds. Uh, this is obviously one I um, I got from my mom. My mom is still a heavy seed collector. She also trades in seeds. Um, my childhood stuffed animals and dog socks. But this is not really my collection. It's the collection of uh, the dog brother, Kato. Uh, then I have some collections that function as abstractions or essences of a space. So they consist of special objects or memory artifacts. Um, this is a box that has all the artifacts from Australia. Um, during my visit, I collected corals, a ponytail of an actual pony, seashells, and part of a clock. The USA is confined within uh, a dried salamander, for butterfly wings, a bug, some very precious notes of my mother, including a list of the names of the friends she met during our visit, so she could remember them, and also a list of things that she enjoyed during our trip together um, and how to make it more enjoyable. It reads, be happy, share, and do things together. Then we have uh, Russia, which is a floater, a spring, some old barbed wire. Mexico has a little bow tie, a fridge amulet, some stones and a few old bottle caps. Japan has a leaf, some strings, three bugs, dried grass, something around 100 yen saved uh, inside this like kind of side view car mirror cover. Uh, and then the next iteration of collections are objects that are more than just an object. Okay, they have 
Bright Frogs, that will never be kissed. And a collection of wishbones that still have a wish inside of them. Okay, so this is just like a short kind of collection of collections that I could find back in my elderly house. And I think about them and what these types of different little collections mean towards each other, but also separate of each other. And what it means to make these types, like what drives me to do this, right? Um, well, one thing that I think is very important is like the sum of these objects just becomes more than the objects themselves. So it's impossible to collect or to take home what they represent, but they do become a conduit for imagination. They form what they call a cosmos, you know? And so while I'm making and collecting all these collections, they are pinning something down. They are like a battle that I cannot win. I cannot take the Prelinger library home. I cannot take my full and entire experience of Australia home, but I can kind of like try and encompass it into this like relational objects together. So I'm constantly kind of chasing and reformulating the ends and the limits of these collections. And I feel like that is where to me these collections or this developing sense of material objects meaning more and becoming more than the sum of their parts as um, something that has grown into my research-based practice. When I do research, I'm collecting all these digital objects, texts, videos, uh, images, little footnotes, etc. And I save them on my desktop. I don't use a mirror board, but that's what people do now, or they use Obsidian, etc. Mark down situations where they can like collect the connections between them and draw out, simulate a path that gives them the knowledge of what this object that they want to research means to them. So back to my collection folded inside a collection of collections, meaning the Prelinger library. I started to, after kind of like revisiting these different types of analog collections, I started to think, yeah, my research practice really is that. Every time I have a research, I am collecting perspectives on a subject. And so I wanted to like just pull out a few examples. They're older, they're newer. Um, I don't want to go into the particular works too deep, but I want to touch upon them to really show like that's also what a research-based practice really is. It's collecting different perspectives, uh, open-ended on a particular subject. So what I did is, uh, here we are in the Prelinger library again. Um, I just stuck in some of my research-based projects, some of my collected thoughts on particular subjects. Uh, here uh, we see um, a vernacular file format, and this is the installation as it was in uh, the Stedelijk Museum. I want to pull this up for a quick moment um, on the web. Uh, the vernacular file format is a work from 2010. It was about the language of image encoding and video encoding 
and how that can be shown on the surface of the image through glitching the data code of the data file. Um, the Stedelijk Museum bought that work. It bought the vernacular file formats, but it didn't buy the vernacular file formats. It bought the archive, meaning it bought 16.8 gigabytes of broken data. It bought an archive that is glitched, that is unstable, and that had a particular way to look at a particular time, but then it changed. And so part of their transaction, their uh, buying of this particular work was a big conversation about what it means to buy an unstable work, not like from the 70s or whatever, but in the digital. And so we came to the conclusion it would be nice to also have documentation involved. I'm, for me, that was really interesting. I think it goes a little bit against what Mackenzie wrote, Mackenzie Wark wrote in her text about what artists care about. I actually cared a lot about thinking through how this work could survive in different forms. And so I sold the 16 gigabytes of broken data, but I also sold all the texts about the work, meaning um, they were they didn't buy the copyright, but they bought like um, kind of a, an archive of texts, uh, images of texts, ways in which the work was co-opted or stolen, images of those things, and um, the different insta installation photos. And so um, what I've been thinking about uh, a lot is then what is the glitch here? Um, what is the glitch if in the glitch the stability uh, if I sell the glitch, I also sell the stability of that particular thought in time um, by capturing it as a static image or a static text. Anyway, so this was uh, a whole collection of different invocations of the work that became finally um, this one installation within what the audience could see. But in the back end of the museum, there was all the research, the PDFs, and everything else. Uh, another work that I think uh, is of interest is a vernacular of glitch effects, which is really much more um, a research-based work. Uh, I watched of the, um, the internet movie database, uh, the sci-fi part, I watched the last 30 years of sci-fi trailers so say one to three minutes every trailer the 40 trailers that were the highest in the internet movie database for the last 30 years a lot of trailers a lot of minutes and every time a glitch was there i took a screenshot and i described why this glitch was used within that particular setting what was it signifying why did a hollywood producer put a glitch within that particular trailer and I believe that there is a very um, referential space. Glitches now are uh, a language within themselves. And so I started to realize, like, for instance, yes, ghosts are still stuck within analog media. When there is um, kind of a sign that the ghost is interrupting our space, we see that through, you know, noise in a analog noise within the display or within the frame of the trailer. 
um, when we're jumping in time, there is a swift switch of blocking through the frame. Like the frame gets interrupted by blocks, not by lines, etc. But there are some blocks that are of the now and there are some blocks that are of the past or the future. So time travel is done within blocks, cannot done flu fluidly. Things are in incremental changes. Um, so these types of languages I thought were very interesting, but they happened by a collection. I happened to see them by drawing out lines, by collecting images through a collection that I could enter from the Internet Movie Database. Um, my last collection that I wanted to pull up was uh, my collection of impossible images. This is a recent work I've made. And it's a, it's a collection that I created by talking to the scientists at CERN. Uh, it's a collection of um, different impossible images that I spoke, that I got from interviewing uh, over 80 scientists there. So um, I have a lot of impossible images and then I started to categorize them, like what makes this Im image impossible. And so within this particular work, which is uh, called The Blob of Impossible Images. I'm going to actually go there right now. It's another digital space. Um, I made kind of an indexation or categorization of impossibility. So um, we're loading the space right now. It's loading three, 34 objects, 34 impossible objects. Um, this is the blob. And within the blob, which is an impossible image by itself, right? Because it's uh, a Marais-based world. Um, here we see an exhibition of different types of impossibility. And so some of these impossibilities are time-based, others are space-based, uh, others are just impossible because we don't believe they are possible. Their, their impossibility is kind of like stuck into our belief systems. Um, some of them are impossible because we don't have the technology to create them. Um, either way, I kind of like started to categorize them. And from that, I started to kind of like create this new perspective of what are the affordances for making things possible and where does impossibility slip in? And so what happened to me is that I think through these different types of research-based practice, collecting different perspectives on a topic, and I think it's very clear in this, this world of impossibility, what I started to see is um, if you first start casting a really wide net around the subject you want to understand and then you start to use that net really as like this mesh network of different nodes and see the relations between them the subject kind of becomes its vessel for making new knowledge and so you start to see how they relate and how they maybe relate less where you can draw lines imaginary or real and how you can tell a story and how that story might at the end become kind of like a knowledge about that subject. Um, and 
at this point in time, for me to put these types of thoughts not in the mirror board or in obsidian space, but to put them in a 3D environment like I've done right here, like I've done with the Predinger library, and I'm also doing with other works like um, uh, this work about uh, this work I'm working on right now, which is about different perspectives on how cyclopses see. And even about my own artist portfolio, I feel like they become their own kind of um, memory cabinets or even, which I actually really dislike, but I also really like like Cabinet of Wonders. Um, but then by me giving a guided tour through this wonder cabinet in 3D, I kind of create this like memory trail and we share more than just the digital objects, but we share a language, an interpretation and a lens on how they connect. And so to draw all of that back to where we started with um, Mackenzie Works um, text, my collectible ass, <laughs> which I love. Um, I wanted to come back to this one sentence. What is collected is nothing more than the act of collecting itself, which is a derivative of the information circulating about the work. I think that sentence is great for 2017, but I want to add something to it in 2022. It is nothing more than the act of collecting itself. But it's not just that, because what we should strive for now is to create spaces in which we can show it is more than the act of collecting. It's also the act of telling stories. And so here I wanna draw back one line to an NFT conference I was at, and Tina Rivers Ryan was there, and she made a proposal about NFT spaces. She said, um, I want to propose the museum as a blockchain. So what does that mean? Or how does she interpret that? And how does that like line up with what I'm trying to talk through? Like the blockchain is just a ledger, but we have ledgers. The blockchain has brought new questions to our space, as I said. It has brought questions like collecting, collections, documentation, derivatives or authenticity. It brought all these questions to the table. But we have a space, the digital space, where we could do more things than just these like collections. So my question is if the museum could be like blockchain or is like blockchain, how can we infill these new forms of collecting and put them in line with what a museum does in forms of stewardship, telling stories, bringing untold stories to the forefront? And how do our contemporary, our spaces of NFT, our spaces of digital collectibles, also meaning Bandcamp, also meaning Miro, how may they actually facilitate this type of threading that museums have hundreds, if not thousands of years of um, practice, best practice from. How can we draw from that space 
and make what we really need is create knowledge from these collections, right? How can we bring and facilitate that better? That is what is interesting to me. So I want to thank Tina and Mackenzie Work for um, their thoughts and how I got to present them at Bibliotech and now here in INC. And I hope that we can think through that more consistently and more deeply and not just throw away the CryptoKitties because I think the CryptoKitties give us actually maybe a really good test case of what is missing.